Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenigisoltas. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trademark Podcast. This episode is part of our occasional Potted History series, which takes a look at some of the key historical periods, events and processes that have shaped the world we live in today. For this installment of the series, we thought we'd look at an episode in history that has some parallels with the situation in the north of Ireland today, particularly in terms of unionist rejectionism and loyalist mobilisation against what they see as a threat to their political security and that is the Loyalist Ulster Workers' Council strike, which took place during the last two weeks of May 1974. And to take us through this period of history, we're delighted to have with us Dr Stuart Eviard from Manchester Metropolitan University. And Stuart's written widely on the history of the Troubles, including different aspects of the Eurobacy strike. So thanks a lot, Stuart, for coming on to speak to us. Thank you very much for having me. So I think we'll jump straight in, if you don't mind. Um, could you begin by telling us a wee bit about the background of the UWC strike, what it was and how it emerged? Yep, no problem. So as I say, it lasted over a fortnight and it was a, a kind of a general strike, but it's important to say it's backed also by some loyalist paramilitary intimidation and the kind of role that that plays is something that we'll have to cover as well. A number of people in different industries go on strike, a lot of intimidation on the streets. And at the end of the fortnight, a kind of Northern Ireland executive kind of system of devolved government in Northern Ireland collapses at the end of that strike. And the reason that happens is in opposition to this thing called the Sunningdale Agreement that was made right at the end of 1973. This executive that's come into being uh, only really started in January 1974 and five months later, um, it comes to an end. So I think, yeah, a follow-on question from that logically would be what what was Sunningdale? What is it about this kind of agreement that produces that reaction that makes this whole thing collapse? A lot of this, I'd say, goes back to the collapse of the form of government uh, two years previously in 1972. So there'd been this unionist-dominated regime. There was no prospect of anyone else getting into government um, in Northern Ireland other than the Unionist Party. And that regime lasts up until 1972 when it collapses in the context of uh, the kind of increasing violence, that kind of surge of violence in 1973 to 1972 at the start of the Troubles, eventually leads the British um, to put an end to that system of that unionist government being in place. Uh, It's not long after Bloody Sunday. Um, There's a desire for the British to, uh, I think, control security even more closely, take some powers off of that Northern Ireland government, and they have to... uh, uh, because of this unionist refusal to hand over those powers that ends up collapsing. And what you have to understand is the British end up introducing direct rule from Westminster, but they don't actually want to do it. It's something that they feel that they have to do. And if there's one single thread in British policy right the way through all of this, as far as the government is concerned, it's trying to minimise Britain's role in Northern Ireland as much as they can. They've been trying to get uh, systems of government set up in Northern Ireland that mean that London doesn't have to take much of an interest. 
before the Troubles, they didn't even want Northern Ireland really being discussed in Parliament. You used to get people raising it and they'd be told that they were not allowed to talk about devolved matters. The Troubles puts an end to that kind of refusal to talk about these things in the House of Commons. They were reluctant to um, deploy troops. When they do, they say, look, they're only there, you know, for the sake of security and it's down to the Unionist government to reform itself. When that fails, the whole thing collapses. They decide that what they need to do is to have some kind of system of government in which you get both unionists and nationalists in power, um, cooperating in some kind of coalition. And that, I think, comes to be, you know, the basis for the Sunningdale Agreement, something that the Irish government wants as well. Um, there's a lot of cajoling that's done over the course of 1973 to try and get uh, the Unionist Party, the kind of moderate, you know, nationalist, constitutional nationalist, Social Democratic and Labour Party to go into office with them, along with the Alliance Party. That's what is being opposed here, is this system of government in which we get a power-sharing arrangement of both unionists and nationalists together with the addition of a kind of all-island dimension of a council of islands that's meant to produce some cooperation with the republic that the unionists are particularly scared of, I think. And just to clarify, what was the, because I know there's some debate about this, what was the biggest problem for unionists? Was it the all-island dimension, the power-sharing dimension, or was it a bit of both? I think what the people behind the strike really emphasise is the council of islands. But it's because it's the most, uh, I think, obviously threatening to them element of the Sunningdale Agreement. There is talk of it being used as a vehicle for a United Ireland. The SDLP are in a very difficult position in terms of uh, having been a party almost entirely of opposition, finding itself into government. It talks up some of these elements for its own supporters to show that there is actually a prospect of constitutional nationalism delivering something in Northern Ireland. And part of that is, you know, um, talking up the Council of Ireland specifically, which is pretty meek when you look at the detail of it. If you get into the legal, you know, details, it's really um, down to everyone in that Northern Ireland executive has a bit of a veto about what would get transferred into a Council of Ireland, what cooperation there might be with the Republic. Um, but it gets talked up as being a body that could be a kind of beginning of an all-island government if it's given increasing powers. So they put a lot of emphasis on that being fundamentally a threat to the union. But when we see what happens in the aftermath of the strike, we see uh, attempts to try and put this all back together without a council of islands, and it doesn't go anywhere. This opposition to power sharing becomes really important. Unionists are not having any of that in the aftermath of this strike, which I think goes to show that it's, it's the lot of it really is objectionable. They talk up the most offensive part, but they're not really happy with power sharing either at all. That's a really useful clarification, like, because I know some people even today would, would try to stress one aspect or, over another. You mentioned the role of loyalist paramilitaries, in particular in driving the strike. So who, aside from the loyalist paramilitaries, or who, including loyalist paramilitaries, was involved? Um, what kind of popular and political support did it have? And... Following on from that, I suppose, what what the main methods used during the strike? Cool. Um, so the Ulster Workers' Council, I mean, it's set up in 74 almost essentially for this strike to happen. And it is um, a kind of mixing of key workers of a loyalist political background in kind of key industries like electricity and oil, uh, gas, stuff like that, 
but also with key loyalist paramilitaries involved in as well. So the person that chairs the UWC during the strike is a fellow called Glenn Barr, and Glenn Barr is a UDA man. He's more on the political side uh, in terms of, you know, rather than necessarily being active in violence himself, he's more kind of looking to kind of turn the UDA into something of a political movement. But he chairs the UWC along with key people like Harry Murray. Uh, Billy Kelly is another very important trade unionist because he works in the power stations and the, the kind of the power stations end up being, I think, the most important aspect of the kind of traditional strike story of what goes on. Um, but we also have Andy Tui, the top fella in the UDA. We also have Ken Gibson, another man from the UVF. Um, so we've got, uh, yeah, paramilitary involvement and some of the kind of intimidation that they get involved in, in terms of their organizations on the streets. Some people would say that when it comes to support, we're not even really looking at a strike. We're looking at a lockout in a lot of ways, that people are prevented from going to work in this more than they are, you know, actively choosing to strike. Um, so that's the kind of story of, of the key people in the UWC. And the politicians kind of turn up a bit later. Ian Paisley famously disappears off to Canada for a week, um, for the first week of the strike. When he comes back, this strike, which initially isn't all that successful for the first few days, it's bedded in after a week. And it's, it's really starting to have an effect. There's a sense of momentum behind it. And suddenly he's wanting to come along to UWC meetings and, and get some kind of credibility from being a part of it. Uh, Glenn Barr famously being pretty opposed to that and, and trying to stop him from being able to get into the room at some of those meetings, things like that. Another kind of maybe forgotten unionist politician of the time, Bill Craig, who was very important in the kind of early stages of the Troubles when he was the Minister for Home Affairs that bans that civil rights march um, in Derry back in October 68. He has kind of by this stage split off the unionist party and has a vanguard unionist progressive party, which is a little bit more tied in with the UDA, a um, little bit closer to some of these paramilitary groups. He's a, a little bit closer to the UWC, I think, um, and kind of, yeah, more actively involved, a little bit more enthusiastic earlier on. But we've also got those members of the Unionist Party that were opposed to Sunningdale and had stood against the kind of provisions um, that the government was going for um, in an election the previous year. They all kind of come to be on board with the strike in its second week, um, the politicians. But it's once it's proven that it's probably going to be successful that they throw their weight behind it, I think. This question of support, I think we could maybe split into two. Um, opposition to Sunningdale, the extent at which there is kind of unionist hostility to Sunningdale and the extent to which there is actual enthusiasm for the strike itself. As I said, the strike, it gains momentum, it gains support. When it first starts, there's a belief that this isn't going to work. There have been a couple of things like this done before. Um, a group called the Loyalist Association Workers um, had held a, a day of action in February 1973 in which the UDA had got involved in a lot of fighting with British soldiers. They'd, you know, kind of exchanged shots with the British Army. There'd been rioting going on and that all kind of backfired. And I think there was an assumption at the start of this that it would all end um, in rioting and a bit of a disaster. Um, what we find is that this one is, this strike is conducted a bit more cleverly. Um, We've already seen that in terms of playing to the Council of Ireland. But in some ways, I think the Sunningdale Agreement is on its way out. And this is the, this strike just kind of, uh, it's the short, sharp end to it of a long process of it being undermined for the previous five months or so. 
would be my kind of view. Unionism is split on this. It was split on the idea of doing it before they even make that agreement in December 73. There'd been a kind of an election held for a Northern Ireland Assembly in June 73, where we see uh, a majority of the parties being in favour of having power sharing and some kind of all-Ireland dimension. Um, but the unionist element of that comes out 27 opposed, 23 in favour. So if we look at just the unionist parties that get seats in that assembly, more of them are against doing this than are in favour of it. And it's been chipped away at along the way. Um, the Irish government signs up to it, is very keen on both of these elements, but it ends up having a court case in early 74 because there's a, a, a TD a politician from Fianna Fáil, Kevin Boland, who says that this is unconstitutional to accept a, a system that falls short of a, of a United Ireland. He says that the kind of, there's these two articles in the Irish constitution that reserve the right of the Republic of Ireland to govern and legislate for Northern Ireland. And he says that they are being contravened in allowing this kind of system to come into existence. The Irish government has a duty to be pushing for a united Ireland. It's his argument. The Irish government win this court case. But they win it by making the argument that, that they have not contradicted the constitution. They are still very much in favour of a united Ireland. This is just day-to-day -day policy for now, but in the medium to long term, they will be pushing for this which naturally kind of undermines the unionist sense that this could be a workable solution when there's kind of the notion that the Irish government is secretly trying to turn it into something else. The Irish government almost ends up presenting itself in that way. And I think the biggest thing in kind of demonstrating the way the wind is blowing is the British general election of February um, 74. This comes in in the context of the miners' strike. We get the Conservative government falling. We get a Labour government coming in. Um, but so far as Northern Ireland goes, we get the Unionist parties who are opposed to Sunningdale cooperating with each other in the election, and they end up winning 11 out of the 12 Westminster seats. So as far as the Labour government's concerned, they're in power. They have the majority. There is, across both Labour and Conservatives at Westminster, support for all of this. There's no doubt that the British Parliament is in favour of Sunningdale. But so far as the kind of uh, representation of Northern Ireland at Westminster goes, it's 11 out of 12 people that are opposed to it. Um, and this is where another element of the cleverness of the UWC comes in, because what their actual demand is right the way through the strike is for an assembly election in Northern Ireland. What they're saying is um, the way that things are going, clearly people don't want Sunningdale, call an election. And I think that ability to say, call an election makes, you know, uh, makes it look like a much fairer claim. Test public opinion. Public opinion has gone differently. I think what we see for both the British and the Irish governments and the Northern Ireland executive is a plane for time and a hope that things can be proven to work over the next three years or so. And there'll be an assembly election in 1977, and it would have been demonstrated that all of this stuff is not as bad as everyone's worried it's, it's going to be, as far as the unionist community goes. Um, but I think opinion against Sonningdale and the unionist community is all very much gone against it very sharply and very quickly by the time the strike comes along. That, that's a very useful you know, separation in terms of the support for the strike uh, versus you know, anti-Sonningdale sentiments and I suppose that, that the call for an, uh, 
an assembly election gives the strike in a democratic veneer that maybe it, it, it didn't have. You've led us nicely to talk about the role or the response of the governments. You've mentioned the, the Irish governments and of course those two articles of the constitution or the two articles that are eventually removed in order to pave the way for the support for the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, on the British government side, many Labour politicians at the time were very critical of the Wilson government for failing to put down the strike. Um, and a number of academics have since sort of echoed those criticisms. Could you tell us a bit more about the government's response and the different factors that were influencing it? Yeah, I think it's a really popular view that Labour was weak during this strike, that Labour wasn't willing to confront um, the strikers and that there's a real kind of missed opportunity here. There's, I mean, there's been other academics like Michael Kerr have called this a missed opportunity for peace, that there was this chance that if the government had stood up for this system um, over the course of this strike, um, that it would have it would have sustained itself and there'd have been a lot less violence as a result of having this, this political system in place. Um, I don't really buy that, I think. I think that um, that view was very quickly expressed by people that were part of that Sunningdale agreement that were real enthusiasts for it. It's the kind of standard line in the SDLP that becomes to be in a more qualified version, the line of people like Brian Faulkner on the unionist side that wanted it to work. They're kind of disappointed. And I think it's a really neat, easy explanation to say, well, Labour governments are too sympathetic to strikers. That's a, a feature of that kind of argument. And I don't buy that to start off with, I think, as, as one aspect of this claim that Labour are, are, are too weak. Um, in terms of a willingness to send the army in against strikes, there had been 21 occasions in GB, in Great Britain, where troops were sent in to deal with strikes. And out of those 21, 15 of them were done by Labour governments. So I don't think a Labour government is necessarily uh, reluctant to send in troops against strikes per se. It's a different context in Northern Ireland um, than it is from those GB strikes. But I think when you look at those kinds of cases, you see previous historical cases, the disadvantages of sending troops in and the fact that it doesn't work. And that there's quite a difficult calculation involved as to whether it's the right time to send the army in or not. Um, so 1949, there's a power station strike in London. Um, they send in British troops to try and run some of those power stations. They discover, first of all, that the British soldiers are not fit to do some of the technical engineering stuff that, you know, they're hoping they're going to be able to do. But the biggest thing is the kind of the opinion in the trade union movement immediately turns against this and they will walk out to other power stations. So I think that there's an awareness that it's not as straightforward as sending people in, send the army in. I mean, we've seen this recently as well. This has happened with the kind of the passport control thing. Well, the assumption is we can just get a bunch of soldiers, send them in to deal with these things. What ends up happening is they don't end up following the rules. They don't end up doing the job to the kind of, you know, specific technical requirements that needs done. When we had that recent case, the solution was to just let everyone through. That was what happened, you know, recently with the passport thing. Um, and I think that there's a kind of cleverness on the part of the strikers in this, in not pushing things too far. Uh, so we get this strike in the power stations that brings the level of electricity down to about 60% of what it normally is. It works very well for them and it puts the government in the position of having to choose what runs and what doesn't in order to keep life ticking over. So the safety of all of this, you need to have hospitals running. 
the one thing that you want to sacrifice if you get an electricity reduction like that is commercial business because all the other stuff ends up mattering more. And this is where it becomes something of a lockout, I think. And it's where I think the electricity is most important is that a lot of firms end up not operating on the advice of government, on a kind of general societal response to what's going on here, where if there's power cuts going on, people are better off not turning up to work in manufacturing and things like that to make sure that the hospitals are, are running fine and the schools are running fine and things like that. Um, had they pushed that lower than 60%, had they dropped it to 30%, had they kind of lowered it to a level where the army might have been able to achieve more than the people operating the power stations, then they would have been in trouble. It have made it a kind of, there'd have been a big incentive for the government to, to send people in if it had gone lower. So I think that they were clever in the way that they went about doing it. Also, looking at the kind of records at the time, they, they look at all sorts of ways that they can try and lift that supply a bit higher. There's talk of deploying a nuclear submarine into Belfast Lock and, and, and transferring power from the nuclear submarine onto the electricity grid. And when they look at the amount of electricity that's going to produce, it's just bugger all. It's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough at all. They go, well, okay, maybe we can get a destroyer ship and put that in. No, the stuff that they're going to transfer to the grid is going to be hard to do it, and it's just not going to be enough. Um, but they have that same encounter like in 1949 when they talk to the Northern Ireland Electricity Service, when they talk to the Electrical Power Engineers Association, the main union that's involved in kind of power station. They get this response that says, if you start pushing things too much, we're going to get walkouts. John Hume from the SDLP talks about boosting the electricity supply of Kunkira. Uh, so this is a power station out in County Derry, and the logic of that is it's a mainly Catholic workforce. We don't have the same kind of problem of loyalist opposition in that power station. Maybe we just boost things here in order to, to get that to kind of mitigate some of this reduction that's going on here. And the NIES, when they hear about these plans, says absolutely not because Bally Lumford near Lan, which has a very Protestant workforce, will walk out in response. So all the kind of the ways that they, they look at electricity in particular is trying to intervene on, that's proven to be just too difficult or too likely to provoke a reaction that's going to make things even worse. And I think that's, that's the area where the Labour government has got the most justification for you know having acted the way that it has this pretty clear paper trail of all the problems involved in intervening. You can't just say soldiers can go into power stations and run it. There's too much technical ability required to do all of that. There's too much expertise. It's quite an arrogant view to suggest that you just send the army and just operate all the key industries like, um, and take over that technical expertise. And I suppose it highlights the strength of the unions in those particular sectors. O on the issue of, of trade unions, I mentioned a couple of times that it's probably more accurately described as a lockout, even though they're successful in targeting those key industries. More successful or accurately described as a lockout because wasn't a conventional strike as we would understand it in terms of normal democratic processes of balloting and, and so on. Um, and there's obviously a lot of intimidation involved in enforcing the stoppage, uh, but nonetheless it had implications for the trade union movement. What sort of challenge did this present to the official trade union structures and how did they respond? I mean, I know several trade unionists who were active at the time and wouldn't have very kind words to say about 
the strike um they would go further than describing it as a as a lockout but so what what challenges did it present and how did trade unions try to respond yeah, I, th- I think this is something that needs a lot more attention. It needs a lot more study. I think it's easier to look at the government side of it and the the kind of on the academic side, the literature on the trade union movement isn't good enough. And there's a lot more work that needs done on this. Um, but what I have seen is, I mean, it predates the strike in terms of the difficulties that the trade union movement is put through, and labour politics are put through generally as well. When you look at things like Northern Ireland Labour Party, you see the problem that this dominating influence of constitutional and security issues has on Northern Ireland puts that trade union movement in all sorts of difficulty. I think that there are some parallels with what's going on at this time in GB as well. I think when you look at the trade union movement and you look at the strikes that go on in the 70s, the right always talked this up as being an indication of the strength of trade union leadership. You know, that these the kind of strikes that occur in the winter of discontent are due to trading's being too powerful and their leaders being too powerful. But what we have here, I think, is a kind of more, and it was true for GB, a grassroots influence push up that takes place in which we see it being very difficult for trade union leadership up at the top to exert the moderating influence that they felt was right. I mean, that is, I think, the, the, the story of the winter of discontent as well, is that when you look at the people leading trade unions, there's not much enthusiasm for what's going on, but they feel they're being pushed into this. But I think that um, it's always overstated the extent to which trade union leadership is able to influence uh, the kind of rank and file resentment and opposition um, that's going on that informs a lot of these strikes. I think it's very difficult in terms of the political context for Northern Ireland for, for, from what's going on in GB there. But it's a similar story, and we have those very same people trying to exert their influence. We get Len Murray, you know, head of the TUC, coming over to try and get a back to work march um, on the, uh, the Tuesday. So this is in the kind of the second week of the strike, it's in its eighth day. Um, when he's trying to um, encourage people to go back to work in this big demonstration. This deals more with the, the kind of the intimidation side, I think, in that to kind of defend uh, the, the farce and the failure of this back to work march. Um, we look at the extent to which the streets are already being barricaded and how far it, you know they're able to exert themselves or do anything at all in this, right? There is an army and a police operation to try and help Len Murray um, run this back to work march under the banner of the TUC um, on Tuesday the 22nd of May, 74. 1,500 soldiers and 500 policemen are used to keep the seven big main roads into Belfast open. But all of the army reports on this say that they're not able to do anything about all the side streets off of those main roads and that that's what's stopping people turning up. Um, so we get 2,000 security forces being used to try and get this back to work march underway. We only get 200 people involved in the march itself. Um, and he just can't mobilize people to get that back to work march. And I think that's the kind of the sign of the level of intimidation that's out there. And we could maybe talk a little bit more about what the British Army is doing as far as the paramilitary side of the story goes, as opposed to the, you know, sending them into the power stations a bit, I think. But they really, finds that they can't speak for their rank and file either, I think. 
I think for those that are of a kind of loyalist disposition, there's no real hope of trade union leadership influencing um, them. They don't seem to have any credibility on constitutional issues. Um, so it's a really difficult moment for the trade union movement in having really had their leadership usurped by a bunch of loyalists that are in key positions in those industries um, who are able to affect a lot more by calling on those constitutional issues, by calling about the threat of a United Islands. That matters, I think, more to a lot of rank and file you know, and, and workers uh, than the likes of the TUC and some of the key trade union leaders that are, that are trying to get people almost to break the strike as well. That's a hard thing for for trade unionists to, to obviously have a, a clear case for why they object to um, the cause of the UWC, but it's hard to, to make the call for people to, to cross picket lines, even when it's clearly a different kind of political cause that's producing those pickets. Pitts mm, trade union movement in a very different position than what it used to be in it. Um, I wonder how would you characterize the attempts at the at back to work march? Are they are they symbolically important in terms of protecting the right to for people to go to work, the protecting the issue of trade union democracy and and so on, or are they just like foolhardy and futile? I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be sympathy. Some kind of gesture, some kind of you know act had to be undertaken, I think. But it's down to the timing. It would be unrealistic to expect this to happen, have happened two or three days into the strike. I think because of the way that it ramps up and it surprises people um, to be organized ahead in time to be able to do it earlier, um, was it's unrealistic to expect them to have been able to do that. But that would have maybe, if it had been possible, have provoked a very different kind of reaction. It might have got a lot more people out and a lot more people supportive to it. But by the time we've got to the start of the second week of the strike, there is this sense, and I think you see this in terms of uh, Faulkner as the kind of key head of unionism that's in favour of the Sunningdale Agreement, and in terms of the, the Labour government, there is this sense that um, middle-class opinion has already started to change in Northern Ireland during this, which would have been not sympathetic to the strike in any way, I think, at, the, at its beginning. There's this sense that public opinion has gone too far in the other direction, um, and that Sunningdale isn't going to last, and it's too late in the day for this to be taking place. But I say that with that big caveat, I think it would have been unrealistic to expect this all to have been organised and set up quickly enough in the strike and um, for it to have had more of an effect as well. I think, I, yeah, it's just, it's symbolic of the, the su surprise of, of the success of the strike and the momentum that builds up that it just completely fails. And that level of intimidation, again, there are questions about the army, uh, the army's behavior in terms of not being willing to confront paramilitaries enough in the strike, I think. Um, but when you get that level of barricading in a city and that level of, you know, protesting and picketing in side streets, never mind outside the place of employment, that demonstrates the strength of feeling and the amount of people that are opposed to this. Um, it goes much beyond just those places of work um, to, you know, entire estates and communities pressuring people not to go into work. Mm. It's very hard to ignore the popular element of it. Um, I, as you said, there's a lot more work that needs to be done on, you know, the, the 
trade unions role at this time you know the debates maybe that are happening within trade union structures on the shop floor and and so on at different points in the trade union movement's history it's been faced with the threat of a of a split along sectarian lines and there's managed to ward off that threat you know up to the present day so i just wonder in your estimation how great was that threat of a split at that time in terms of the, i know there was an Ulster TUC made it and those sorts of things. I so how great was that threat or how do you I, I th- yeah, I think it's really large. I think it's uh, there's always that issue of a certain proportion of trade union members seeing the role of the trade union as being about just wages and working conditions and not politics. Now that's a pretty narrow understanding of what politics is when people say that, of course. It's a realistic idea of what politics actually is. But that is a really strong, I think, feature of this and a strong incentive to say, don't touch any of this stuff. Don't touch anything to do with the troubles insofar as you can. Stay as far away from any kind of constitutional issues, from any talk of you know the army and what it's up to. Um, and having a really narrow role as a trade union movement in focusing on wages and working conditions. And I think that it is that big a threat, the risk of getting involved in those things, that it's natural that a lot of people are forced into only having that role in the trade union movement um, because of the threat of that split. And I think this is that point where we see that impinging on on strikes. We see that impinging on uh, the organizing of workers and the kind of the use of the strike as a weapon to a point where condemning this is not going to do much good for the trade union movement. There's a need to kind of, I think, survive the strike um, by keeping your head down almost. Yeah, it's probably the, how you would describe the role of the trade union movement or official trade union movement throughout the troubles is, you know, just trying to survive. And I suppose it's a minor miracle that they managed to keep things intact throughout that, that period. But as you say, like it, it involved a, an avoidance of certain sensitive and controversial political questions. I just want to move on. Uh, we've talked about what was involved in the strike. We've talked about some of the responses to it. What was the immediate impact of the strike at its conclusion after those two weeks? Was it successful on its own terms? Yeah, it's successful on its own terms because Brian Faulkner, who's the, the chief executive, they won't use the term prime minister in this settlement because it'll kind of cause too much political trouble, but they call him a chief executive of the Northern Ireland power sharing uh, system. Um, he ends up resigning, the unionists end up leaving this, and like with the kind of uh, system that we have now under the Good Friday Agreement, if you've not got the unionists a part of it, it's not going to work. So the whole thing collapses, power sharing comes to an end. Um, it is immediately successful in achieving that. It is successful beyond that in terms of we don't see power sharing returning. We see the kind of the politics of those involved in the strike. Uh, being absorbed into unionism generally, that unionist party. I mean, in some ways, going back to that point that uh, the strike just puts an end to something that's already going in that direction already, we have to remember that the person that's leading this system of government doesn't lead the unionist party anymore by this stage. Um, it's, it's reached the stage where the Ulster Unionist Council was opposed his, within his own party, was opposed to that council of violence. They passed this vote saying that they're not in favour of this. And he effectively has resigned, you know, party leadership in this. So he's 
He's leading a government, but he's not leading a political party anymore. He is a minority figure within unionism. This is the end of his kind of pro-Sunningdale unionist politics that says that this kind of system um, is good for the union. And what we see in the elections that follow, when there's another attempt to try and get agreement, you get a thing called the convention that's got elections in 75 and meets through 75 and, and 76. The kind of anti-Sunningdale parties dominate within unionism and there is no prospect of a return to power sharing at all. So on that limited objective of just negating what was already in existence, it's successful. Um, it, and it means, you know, there is no prospect of power sharing anytime soon in the aftermath of that strike. And uh, what about the broader sort of longer term legacy? I suppose that that may be one of them is that there's no prospect of, of a return to power sharing. But what's the broader legacy of the strike and that brand of rejectionist politics that they came to, to dominate, that they were built around it. I think the limits of it, the limits of it are that, and you've used that phrase rejectionist a few times, I think, um, it shows that unionists can negate a political settlement that requires them to be involved in it. I think that is the broad kind of legacy of it. Um, and that there is a kind of pressure within unionism that makes it incredibly difficult for anyone in unionism to compromise. And we see this even, I mentioned that convention, come late 1975, early 76, that fellow Bill Craig, who had been hardline anti-Sunningdale, he says, well, I'm not in favor of mandatory power sharing, but I might be all right with a voluntary coalition with the SDLP. And Bill Craig disappears from the political scene very quickly after saying that. So even people that had been on the kind of the harder line of unionism very quickly disappear in the mid to late 70s when they start suggesting a little bit of a willingness to go into some form of limited government with the SDLP. Um, so I think the rejectionist tradition becomes the dominating influence on unionism. And that's it. I think, you know, I mean, you could say for the duration of the conflict till the mid 90s, that is what unionism is. But there's a set of limitations there in terms of some of the people involved in the UWC having hopes that this could have led to something else. And I think Glenn Barr is important in this. He talked up the notion that the UWC strike kind of snatched defeat from the jaws of victory was a phrase that he used to use when he talked about this. So there was a chance to make something else, you know, on the loyalist side and that they kind of, uh, they failed to follow through in the aftermath. And I think um, this misunderstands the real dynamic of what's at work in that what they're able to do is to negate something. They're able to collapse something, but they're not able to pursue some kind of uh, heavily politicized, successful loyalist project like what Glen Barr wants, which might mean an independent Northern Ireland, which he advocates at various points as well. Um, they're not able to seize power. They're not able to take government back to return to Stormont um, you know, pre-1972, all they're able to do is to prevent unionist politicians that would like to go into some form of power sharing from being able to do that. Um, so it's it's more destructive than creative, I think, is the, 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 the legacy of it. It's the power to stop something from going ahead, but not the power to actually uh, influence what's going to go on beyond that. Uh, and one feature of that, I think, one telling aspect of that is that there's another strike that happens three years later. 
which often gets forgotten about. Um, so there's another attempt at the UWC strike in 1977, this time with Ian Paisley on board a lot more and a major kind of feature of it. Um, and it's directed against direct rule from Westminster and saying that there needs to be a return to unionist control of Northern Ireland. There needs to be a majority rule unionist administration in Belfast. And that just doesn't get the support. It doesn't get the power station workers behind it. Bally Lumford, that's so important in 74, doesn't end up being a part of the 77 story. So I think that's the a, a key aspect to understand this, I think, is that all they're able to do is kill Thunningdale. Right, so that, that's a really comprehensive answer. Uh, I, w- I would be very wary of trying to extrapolate too much from that moment, the current moment, but I think the, the parallels and the journey would be very clear to, to anyone who's listening. I think that's a good point to finish. It's been a really interesting discussion. I certainly have learned a lot, and I know people listening will, will have learned a lot too. So all I can do is, is thank you again, Stuart, for, for coming on, and thanks for the discussion. Thank you very much. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper workers and slang of foil.